0: It may look like a lectern is speaking, but I am behind here. Okay, Okay, and uh, the reading is from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and then 18 to 31. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the goblets and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblet that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. And then on to verse 18, Daniel says, O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, All the peoples, and nations, and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those a king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and set over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have, yourself, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written mene mene tekel parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold ring. gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of sixty-two.
1: Thank you, Alan. Thank you to you. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning for our last morning in these Bible readings together. Great to see you. How many of you have been all to all four of them? Okay, that's good. Well done. Turn to the person next to you if they had their hand up and just say, well done. Well done. <clears throat> Can I um, thank you... For your uh, attentiveness and listening, you've been a a lovely group to um, talk to. And also, if I may, take the opportunity just to thank uh, many of you that I've had the opportunity to chat with as I've wandered uh, around the site and uh, met with you and heard your stories. And uh, I'm always so uh, grateful for the opportunity to serve as part of Spring Harvest. It's a fantastic uh, event, and I. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your lovely words of encouragement. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I haven't met actually anybody this week who's been unkind to me, although we've not finished yet, have we? So, <clears throat> And so it's just been really uh, lovely to share these times with you. Um, I will, as Alan mentioned, be over at the bookshop at 3 o'clock. Just to say something about that, again, that is not in any sense wanting to... Uh, uh, create the cult of christian personality rather it is an opportunity i love it i just get the opportunity to meet spring harvesters and and have a moment to to chat together so if you want to be there at three o'clock uh, then uh, it would be lovely to meet you uh, we're going to talk this morning about these two uh, these two royal rulers who were uh, uh, brought down to size i have to confess to you that i haven't had um, too much to do with royalty myself, I did actually stand by to be impressed. I did actually um, meet Prince Philip once. Go oh, calm yourselves! It was a uh, <coughs> it was a life-changing encounter, really, for him. And <coughs> just kidding, just kidding. I was about um, ten at the time. And I was a member of a youth club, and the prince came to to visit our youth club. In fact, if I remember rightly, they actually built a special um, loo for him, so that um, should he need to go, uh, there will be a place where no one else had ever been before uh, for him to use. And we were all hoping that he would need to go. And in fact, he didn't, but that's a detail. They said, um, they said, when he walks in, just carry on doing whatever you 're doing, because he really wants to see a youth club in action, and he walked in, and I had the misfortune to be bouncing up and down on a trampoline at the time, and I thought, "Oh, horrors, here he is. Um, what do I do?" And I remembered they told us how to address him, they told us how to bow, and they told us to carry on doing whatever we 're doing. Do you know it is really difficult to bow and bounce? At the same time and he walked into the youth club and he walked across to the trampoline where I was bouncing and he looked up at me actually kind of went like that at me and uh, he said do you like trampolining it's a bright question isn't it and I said yes sir he nodded and walked off that was it that's the hand that didn't shake the hand Oh, His Royal Highness. I've not been around royalty much. Daniel was very much used to being around kings. Nebuchadnezzar, and then another king who's not actually named in the text. And then uh, Belshazzar, who's mentioned in the text as Nebuchadnezzar's son, but it's a a Hebraism, uh, not actually His son, then Darius the Mede, and then Cyrus in in latter chapters. Daniel is very much used to rubbing shoulders with kings. And this morning, in this final study, we are going to focus on the humbling of two of those kings. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and Belshazzar in chapter 5. Remember we said yesterday, or maybe the day before, that Daniel is not a book that chronologically unfolds, it's more like a a spiral staircase. Now we need to get that because uh, Belshazzar dies at the end of chapter 5 and yet incidents from his reign are mentioned in chapters 7 and 8. And so it's like a staircase going round, looking at different camera angles for our learning. In these two um, power encounters, in a sense, in chapters 4 and 5, we see Daniel confronting two different rulers separated by some 60 years. And I believe it's fascinating to see the different ways in which these men are portrayed and the different ways in which they are treated as a result of their hearts and their responses to God. Nebuchadnezzar is, is treated with sympathy. He is the all-powerful dictator. He has crushed the nation of Israel and yet despite all of that, He emerges from the book of Daniel as a character who is not beyond redemption. In the latter years, God confronts his pride. He responds and he experiences a kind of conversion. And so at the end of this story, how do we find Nebuchadnezzar? We find him, the king, repentant and restored. Belshazzar comes to the throne 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and is portrayed by contrast, As a king resistant and rejected. He is a corrupt, he is an immoral tyrant. And he is presented in this narrative as being beyond redemption. And that is illustrated by his decision to take the goblets that have been taken from the Jewish temple, the Jerusalem temple, kept safe for 60 years in the treasure trove of of Babylon, And uses them for what is really, it's quite politely described in scripture. But if you check out the original text and you uh, check some of the cultural signals, it was effectively a drunken orgy on the last night of their lives. These two kings are shown in sharp contrast. So, what are we going to do together today? I've tried to give you a little, a little brief map so that you know uh, where we're going. Well, first of all, we're going to overview the text. Let's just have another little Bible check, see how many Bibles we've got around the place. A little holding up there. There are some really big Bibles in the place today. Gigantic size. They say the bigger the Bible, the bigger the sinner. But I'm sure that's not <laughs> true at all. Personally, I carry a pocket New Testament. Just kidding. So we'll overview the text, and then we will ask, what can we learn from these two power brokers about the way to live? Now, can I make a comment about this? There is a danger in studying the book of Daniel, and that is that we can end up with a dare-to-be-a-Daniel approach, which speaks to us as individuals, but doesn't make us recognize the value and the importance of the community that is the church. We can come out of the book of Daniel with the mistaken notion, I suggest, that what we simply need is for an upsurge of superheroes in the land. You know, that's a a very popular idea, isn't it, In, in Hollywood. We want superheroes who save the day. James Bond, 007. Every time he gets into a helicopter, he's thrown out of it. He's immersed in shark infested tanks. Every time he gets on a British rail train, he he ends up on the roof, duking it out with someone with stainless steel teeth. He is a hero. Clark Kent, a superman. He's got a few odd habits. He wears blue tights. He obviously needs prayer. But he's a superhero. Please do not use the book of Daniel for the idea that God is simply interested in raising up superheroes. His purpose has always been the creation of a kingdom community, Old and New Testament. The leaders, the personalities, if you will, of the Bible, were there to prod and lead and nurture and prophesy to that community and occasionally to the nations. But it's not about... You or me becoming a Daniel in isolation. We don't just need Daniel individuals, we need Daniel churches. It's about the church. The plan was always that the community of God would be a lighthouse, proclaiming the message, a working model of life as it ought to be. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It's through the church. And so as we consider these things together, let's apply them personally and individually, but let's also apply them corporately to the churches that we are part of. Okay, that, that Bible open. Uh, let's overview the text as we've done before. 30 years have passed since the events of chapter uh, 3. Uh, The image of gold and now chapter 4 have a look at the text and just follow along with me if you will Nebuchadnezzar The narrator of the book of Daniel has included perhaps surprisingly an extract from a Babylonian state paper a testimony if you will from King Nebuchadnezzar Himself he is writing to the people in his kingdom and in that tract He, verses 4 and 5, tells of a troubling, indeed terrifying dream. Later, Daniel is traumatized when he gets the interpretation of that dream. Would you notice in chapter 5, Belshazzar is traumatized when the revelation of God comes. Look at me for a moment when I just pause and say this as an aside. There are times, I think, when we need to realize that what God says will not be comfortable. Prophecy is not just about being told nice things by a nice God. There are times when we will be stirred up, confronted, challenged. And certainly we see that here. The revelation that comes is is troubling. If that is not true, we end up, as we heard from Tony earlier in the week, making God in our own image and insisting that he only ever says anything that suits us. Somebody in America, for a joke, they bought me this plastic dashboard Jesus. It's sort of a Jesus on a spring. And you stick him on your, you'll be glad to know that he's not on my dashboard. In fact, they suggested that you could actually put it on your dashboard, on your bike, or even indeed on your crash helmet, a sort of little Jesus on a spring. Not exactly a fine fashion item, I would suggest. And the reason that they bought me that, they just thought it was amusing because, you see, the plastic Jesus only ever says yes on his spring. He just nods backwards and forwards. He only ever says yes. He's the Savior who likes to say yes. And the book of Daniel shows us that that's not the case. That there are times when God will certainly say no. And there are times when the revelation of God will be troubling to us, will stir us up, will wonderfully mess up our lives and interrupt our plans. It's a troubling, terrifying dream. So, uh, in verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar summons the magic circle again to demand help with the interpretation. But have you noticed this? As usual in the book of Daniel, they draw a blank. Why is it... That some people, despite the vacuous nature of their superstitions, insist on clinging to them anyway. Am I alone in thinking that there is something barking mad about looking in your daily newspaper and considering the arrangement of the planets in order to direct your life? Is it me, or is it just bizarre that people will cling to these things. And I don't say that disparagingly, but on the basis of the the biblical revelation, where God through his prophet sometimes is almost mocking of the idols and says, don't you know they're just wood and they're just stone? They don't work. And yet, people cling to what doesn't work with such loyalty. And Nebuchadnezzar does that notice would you look at verse 7 with me the literary device again remember the literary device of repetition in order to illustrate the point yesterday all those musical instruments all of those civil servants and now just to let us know that the entire magic circle drew a blank verse 7 when the magicians enchanters astrologers and diviners came i told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me daniel comes in verse 8 the king tells him the dream It's a dream about a beautiful, tall, fruitful tree, a shelter for the beasts, a home for the birds. This dream would have resonated with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He had experience in Lebanon where he, history tells us, personally supervised the felling of cedars for transport to his capital. The felling of a large tree leaves an indelible impact upon the person that sees that. And God uses his historical experience in order to get his attention. Verse 13, the tree is cut down at the command of a heavenly being. It is bound, the stump remains, it is bound with iron and bronze, a picture of desolation. Daniel hears the dream. In verse 19, Daniel, obviously upset, interprets the dream. It's going to be you that's going to be cut down to size, O king. And the reason for that cutting down, my brothers and sisters, is found in verse 25. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Remember, despite present appearances, God is in control. The kingdom, verse 26, will be restored to you. I love this phrase. It will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. What a wonderful statement. Heaven rules. Say it with me. A year later, the king having had a chance to repent, he's out admiring his own handiwork, the famous hanging gardens, the historians tell us the palace roof uh, was uh, the scene of a fall of another king. And maybe kings get rather inflated when they look over the extent of their kingdoms. The outer wall of Nebuchadnezzar's new palace embraced six miles. It was a huge, elaborate thing. Massive archaeological archaeological support uh, um, and evidence for all of this. And verse 31, a voice speaks from heaven. Judgment begins. Nebuchadnezzar is driven away. Madness consumes him and he has these, this period of madness, almost insanity. It is really interesting to me that there have been tablets found where Nebuchadnezzar talks about his years of inactivity. Completely unusually, it is not usual for a king to make proclamations about what he did not do. But there are tablets that have been found that support the reality that there was this period of madness, loss of sanity, inactivity, banishment. And then in verse 34, wonderfully, at the end of that time I, was, I raised my, my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And this restoration where the king was more more effective or more powerful, really, than even before because of the hand of God upon him. As the words, the end, appear on the screen for Nebuchadnezzar, it's a good ending. It's a good ending. Look with me at chapter 5. I know we're having to work a little hard just going uh, over this, but let's do that together before we draw out the illustrations we need to. This is Belshazzar the king. If you'd lived in 1845 and I was preaching to you, It's very possible that I would have had to tell you that we're probably doubtful that Belshazzar ever existed. Preachers before 1850 mocked the idea of Belshazzar. They said he was a fictitious character uh, made up. And then cuneiform tablets were found in archaeological digs uh, confirming Belshazzar's identity and name. And red faces were all around. Once again, the Bible being confirmed as being correct in this respect, in all respects, of course. He's having a party. It's a big party. It's raucous. Uh, it says Belshazzar tasted the wine. Uh, it's pretty obvious he's not just had a little sip. Uh, he is uh, somewhat under the influence of the wine. Uh, the drunken king gives a command for the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem to be brought in, probably wanting to please his own gods, Marduk, Nebo, Nergal, and Ishtar. And this act of utter blasphemy means that suddenly, literally, here's two phrases we often use, his days are numbered, and the writing is on the wall. I do believe that there can come a time, When God, having given space for repentance, will say, enough is enough. Now, we know from biblical history, now judgment comes. And suddenly, verse 5, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, where usually the great exploits of the king would be celebrated. The walls of those palaces would be banners of pride for the king. It's on that wall. And by the way, archaeological digs, they've discovered whitewashed walls in that palace. On that wall, a mysterious finger writes words of judgment. Verse 7, the king calls for the magic circle. Surprise, surprise, they can't figure it out. Verse 9, the king gets more terrified. Verses 10 through 13, a woman known as the queen recommends Daniel, get Daniel, he can sort this out. Daniel's brought before the king, is offered a huge reward, says he doesn't want it, and then pronounces judgment over the king The heart of which is, verse 22, you have not humbled yourself. These mysterious words in verses 25 through 28. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom will be divided or destroyed and given over to the Medes and Persians. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar was slain. As the words the end appear over his life, it's a sad ending. A tragic ending. Two quite different stories. One man repentant, the other one rebellious. They are dealt with in quite different ways. One restored, the other one the writing on the wall. Now as we think about these two kings in this final Bible reading this morning, I believe that we need to allow a simple challenge to come to us. You see, the Bible seems to speak in terms of wise and foolish. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs celebrate the, the, the power of wisdom. Learn, remember, pay attention, listen well, embrace wisdom, avoid folly. And then in Proverbs chapter 9, it speaks of two houses. The house of wisdom and the house of folly. And the picture that is given to us there is that you and I, we need to make a decision about which house we will visit in life. When our lives are ended... Will it be written over us that we lived wisely? And wise people do foolish things and foolish people do wise things. But broadly speaking, will it be said of us, they lived well and wisely? A Nebuchadnezzar ending. Or will it be said that we lived foolishly? A Belshazzar ending. I think of Jesus in Matthew 25, speaking of the wise And foolish virgins what will it be for us and what can we learn from them let's say a few things about this then well first of all let's realize from these two men from both of their stories that pride really does come before a fall and can I just say and I've talked about this before at Spring Harvest and I really don't want to tell you about this again Uh, struggled as I I just put this on my notes this morning in my chalet because this really doesn't make me look very good, but I'm going to tell you about this. I discover that being proud is very, very easy as a human being, don't you? It, It lurks in the shadows all the time and it is so easy to fall into it. Pride is at the heart of the tale of the two kings here. Pride is in the Garden of Eden. Pride is in the fall of Satan. And pride is always looking to have us. And the reason I didn't want to tell you about this is because I've got this story I've shared before here about an incident at Spring Harvest some years ago, about seven or eight years ago. I preached right here in the Big Top one evening and it went quite well. People responded, we had a good evening, they helpfully laughed in the right places, more importantly they responded to what God was doing and I went back to my chalet feeling pretty good. By the time I got up the next morning I wasn't feeling pretty good, I was on the verge of congratulating God for the joy of having me on his team. I went over to the bookshop and I'm not, I'm not pleased to tell you this. I just need to confess it to you because it's part of the human condition. I went over to the bookshop and there's a healthy line of people lining up to buy the tape from the celebration from the night before. I felt quite nice. I went into the bookshop and people are buying my books. I felt quite warm and nice. Nice. And then somebody came running up to me, and I've already told you I'm doing a book signing this afternoon. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the attitude that was behind it at that moment. Someone came up to me with a pen and one of my books, and they said, Jeff! And what had already happened, uh, set this up. As I was walking along the road, people were nudging each other, and they're going, it's him. It's it's him. And I went into the bookshop, and this person ran up to me with a book, and they said, Jeff, would you please sign my book? And I did a Vicar of Dibley response. I said, oh, no, 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 yes. And I signed the book with a flourish. By the time I got back to my chalet, I'm not saying the ego was inflated, but I thought I'd have to grease my ears to get out of the chalet. And I was walking around that afternoon, and God spoke to me. <laughs> he has a way. And he simply said one sentence that really helped me. He said, famous in Butlins for a day, are we? Something negative about Butlins is something very negative about me. And that was a life lesson. Pride is always lurking. Let's be careful about it. Pride can creep in when what we do in the local church has to be seen. And can I look at you this morning and say, thank you so much for serving quietly. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't encourage people. I used to freak out when someone would come up and say, thanks for the message. And I'd go into this paralysis and sort of point to the sky and say, no, 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 you know. It was like they were saying, oh, do shut up. I'm just trying to say thank you. Lady came up to one preacher and she said, I just want to thank you for your message this morning. He said, oh, no, no, no. It was the Lord. She said, well, it wasn't that good. Don't take from my comments this morning that we shouldn't encourage people because they might get proud. We need more encouragement. My colleague Darry Northrup from Colorado is here at Spring Harvest this week. He is the most encouraging human being I have ever met in my life. I play golf with him. I am not a good golfer. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm, if you know what I mean. So- <laughs> And I'm out playing golf with Darry and he's a really good golfer and I, I hit the ball and it went straight into a lake. And he slapped me on the back and he said, well done Lucas, great shot. I said, what do you mean Northrop, great shot. I just hit the ball into the water. He said, Jeff, you just hit the ball. I'm not saying let's not encourage one another, but when we do what we do, because it has to be seen, when menial tasks in the local church are menial tasks, rather than an opportunity to serve, when we have the attitude that they will take care of it, they'll wash the communion cups up. They'll, you, know, you, walk, you walk into your church building, and someone's dropped a hymn book, and for a moment you're tempted to pick it up. And then you think, it's all right, they'll take care of it. Whoever they are, these little green men who go into the church building at 3 o'clock in the morning and do all that stuff. Again, my friend Darius says, you can tell if you're a servant by the way that you act when people treat you like one. What about those little knocks in life? What about that person in the chalet next door who had the the telly on too, too loud last night and you wanted to kill him in Jesus' name? What about those little knocks in life in the local church? Do you want to get hurt? Do you want to get disappointed? Do you want to get wounded? Join a church. Of course you will. It's life. It's life. It's part of all relationships. It is learning to be a servant in the the woof and weave of life. It's just stuff. Standing on platforms, I've noticed that people will sometimes say the most remarkable things. And I've had to learn a little bit about servanthood in the way one responds to those things. The lady who came up and said, excuse me, have you ever had a stroke? I said, why do you ask? She said, when you smile, one side of your face goes up. I don't look now. And I was momentarily tempted to say, I'm just seriously ugly, darling. What's your excuse? But I did not say that. Did not say that. That would have been rude. Is your church a servant church? Is your church the best church in town? That's the greatest worship, the greatest preaching. Come to our church. Or do you say, your kingdom come, your will be done? You see... The trouble with us as churches and denominations, we've got this lingering suspicion that we really are the best. Pride really does come before a fall. Let's call each other towards humility and call our churches towards humility. Every weekend in Timberline in Colorado, this mad church, fourteen to 15,000 there last weekend for Easter services. Every weekend... Prayer is offered for the churches of the city. Every weekend the announcement is made. This is not the church in this city and this may not be for you. Honoring the churches of the city. I believe it's been a key to the growth. Pride does come before a fall. Secondly, look out for the junction moments. Look out for the junction moments in life. For Nebuchadnezzar, that moment when he looked out over his kingdom, that was a junction moment that affected him for years afterwards. Belshazzar, learning about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that was a junction moment, but he just didn't get it. And I noticed this thing with Belshazzar. We know that this event with Belshazzar actually happened on October the 12th, 539 BC, Herodotus and Xenophon, historians have recorded that there was a raid on uh, the royal, on the city during the holding of a royal banquet. We know exactly how the raid took place. They stopped, they temporarily stopped part, uh, that they diverted part of the river Euphrates. And the invaders entered the city by means of the, the dried up riverbed And it is recorded that the Persians killed the young, irreligious Babylonian king. They're holding a party when they know that raiders are in town. I believe, my brothers and sisters, it may have been here at Spring Harvest this week. There are moments in all of our lives that are junction moments. When the spies came back from the land of Canaan and said, we cannot take it. That was a junction moment that affected the people of God for many years. When David killed Goliath, it was a junction moment. When David stared at Bathsheba and then went to her, it was a junction moment. It was a turning point moment that affected his ongoing life. When the church met in Acts 15, the council of Jerusalem, it was a junction moment. Are you at a junction moment in your life right now, sir? And you know that what you do this week, this year, could affect the rest of your life. Please, I beg you, think about it and get it right. I told people who came to the stress seminar the other day that I formatted the hard drive of my computer by mistake once. That itself created a little stress. For those of you who are not computer literate, that is the equivalent of taking the top of your head off, removing your brain, throwing your brain away, and putting the top of your head back on. It nukes everything. In fact, the computer was a little shocked when I told it to do it. It said, are you sure? And I said, yes. And nuked my diary, my accounts, every message I've ever preached. I nuked it. And I was not a happy camper. I did not stand there and say, well, the Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Sometimes I wish that a pop-up window would appear at those junction moments. And there would be a cellar moment, a pause moment, when someone somewhere would say, are you sure? Are you sure you want to actually destroy that church? Are you sure that that move you're making, which you know in the back of your mind could spell destruction, are you sure? I don't say that to paralyze us. I do say that to ask us to consider these most significant moments. I think churches have those moments too, like the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Junction moments. At Timberline, we had one when Nicky the stripper showed up. Nikki the stripper, not uh, wearing anything manufactured by Laura Ashley, arrived at our church with a miniskirt just about three inches below her chin. She was, uh, she looked like a stripper. She created quite a stir when she walked in. 300 brothers joined the greeting team the following week. Just kidding, just kidding. Nikki the stripper became a Christian. Decided to stop stripping. No one told her to. Jesus told her to. And the night she was baptized, Nikki the stripper bought 30 of her friends from the club. (laughs) An interesting looking group. And the way that the church responded to them showing up was a junction moment for the church. Are you getting that? You see, we can pray all we like that God will help us to be prodigal friendly, for example. But when those junction moments in our church's history arrive, then we must understand the need for us to make the right decisions at that point. Know your junction moments. Thirdly, Know your fault lines. When you study Nebuchadnezzar's life, it's very obvious that he had a real ongoing problem with pride. Uh, You get a hint of that because he kind of makes a statue probably of himself and insists that people worship it. It's kind of the ego has landed. Can I ask this question of you? I ask it of me. Do you know what your fault line is? Do you know where your weaknesses are? I believe that God wants us to be aware so that we can prepare. So that we can tell our friends, this is where I struggle. Confess our, not our sins interestingly, confess your faults one to another. Related to sins but somewhat deeper. Pray for each other that you may be healed, says James. Do we know our fault lines? And by the way, are we aware that our churches have got weaknesses too? A couple of things about that. First of all, don't be surprised. Why is it that we get upset and perturbed when someone upsets us or something upsets us in the local church? What do we expect? If you've been part of a local church for more than six months and nothing's irritated you, yet you are probably clinically dead. Get over it. Don't be surprised. But also, own the challenge. Don't become a fault finder. Somehow standing outside the weaknesses of your local church. Please, please don't go back from spring harvest this week. Please don't go back. And we well, do go back from spring harvest this week. But don't go back to your church and say. "Lo And yea. I have been to mine head. And indeed much has been revealed unto moi. And I the prophet Eric. Doris, fill in the blank, have now arrived to proclaim unto you in the spirit of Daniel and his pals the much naughtiness of this congregation, amen. They will be building a barbecue for you. Know your fault lines. And own them in your church as you being part of the challenge. Because the church in the macro, you in the micro, contribute to what that is. Fourthly, quickly, guard your relationships. You say, how is this related? Well, I I, I just noticed that what we are in the reality of our hearts doesn't just come out in our walk with God. It comes out in our walk with each other. That's why I'm so cheered By kindness that I see in people. Because it speaks to me of something that God is doing in their lives. I notice that Nebuchadnezzar speaks respectfully to Daniel. And I notice also that Daniel is moved and grieved about the judgment coming upon Nebuchadnezzar. Which is pretty remarkable. Because back in chapter 2, it's that Nebuchadnezzar that actually wanted Daniel dead. There's kindness. And Belshazzar is arrogant. Calvin says he interrogates Daniel as if he were a prisoner. With Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel comes in to the king. With Belshazzar, Daniel is brought in before the king. Arrogant. Unkind. Expresses outwardly what's going on in our hearts inwardly. Finally, four minutes past eleven, with this we're going to conclude Be a lifelong learner. Keep having a spirit of learning. Isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had a heart that was tender enough so that God could send him a dream? And Belshazzar had a heart that was so hard that God had to write the stuff on a wall. Notice that? One man can receive a dream. The other one's got to have it done. The Old Testament version of PowerPoint. Nebuchadnezzar learned and Belshazzar never learned. Isn't God marvelously patient with us? Does anyone agree with that? I know he is such a kind instructor. I taught my Darling daughter to drive, and there should be something in the Bible about that. <laughs> Proverbs 41:2 Ridest not in thine daughter's chariot, or something like that. I know that anxious feeling of her driving down the road and slamming on the brakes so hard that I kissed the windscreen. As I experienced that frustration, And indeed intercessory prayer at a high pitch level. I marvel at God. Who will so kindly allow us to be enrolled in a lifelong academy. Keep learning. I was profoundly moved yesterday. No one needs to be embarrassed. I'm not going to mention who you are. But a dear lady came to me. I think in her 80s. To apologize for an attitude and to say I was wrong. And she made me cry because at her age she had the grace and dignity to still wear to still wear L plates. And all of us have got them on. You probably can't feel them on your back right now, but they're there. Be a lifelong learner. And please do learn the lessons of life truly. At our home in Colorado, Kay called me out to the dining room. She said, you've got to see this. And I noticed that there was a bird that was profoundly attracted to a a plastic chandelier-y thing that looks brass, but it's not. And the light was bouncing off the brass, and the bird outside the house had seen this chandelier and for some strange reason best known to the bird was rather attracted to the chandelier. The only thing is the bird not being massively intelligent hadn't noticed that there was a window between the chandelier and the bird. So here comes Birdie. Tweet, 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 splat. Corrugated beak. Disappears for a while. Five minutes later, he's back. I can see me out there, he's hovering, hovering, hovering. He's like, ooh, the chandelier, the chandelier. Let's go for pizza, you know. Ooh. Tweet, 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 splat. Corrugated beat. Five minutes later, he's back. Tweet, 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 splat. And I thought, when's it going to give it up? It lasted for about 90 minutes. I wanted to give it an or something. You know, it's good. It never learned. There's a window. So when you're tempted to kiss your brains goodbye, because sin often carries with it the opportunity for a moment of temporary madness, why not stop and say, are you sure? Why not learn from the lessons of life? Before Alan comes to pray for us, there are three things for us to consider as we close today. The need to make choices to be either wise or foolish. Proverbs 9, wisdom builds a house, folly builds a house. Which one will we enter? What will be written over our lives? Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar? We realize that wisdom is not a principle to be learned, but a relationship to be enjoyed. As Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. It's not about just learning the right stuff. It's about walking with the God of wisdom and allowing that wisdom to flow through you. Secondly, we've got to look today and consider for just a moment the example of Jesus, the servant king. Philippians 3 says he's being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exhorted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then thirdly, we realize that we don't actually need to fear exile. As we think tomorrow about the We actually realized that exile for Daniel meant God showing up, giving favor, opening doors, granting revelation and insight, helping people take a stroll in the flames, keeping lion's mouths shut, outliving wicked kings, and being helped when others plot your downfall. Despite present appearances, God is in control. Heaven rules. You see, the psalmist asked that question that we've been considering all week. How can we sing the Lord's song? In a strange land. And this book. The book of Daniel says. We can. We really can. But we can sing it not just on Sunday mornings. But on Monday mornings. And we can sing it not just in church buildings. But in the marketplace. Daniel and his friends. Give us the answer. Together with one another. And together with God. We really can be quite the most fantastic choir.